Hi, this is Adam from Assumption Church. And before we begin this episode of the Assumption Church podcast, we'd like to offer a little bit more of an introduction and some context. With this session of Tao Talks, we decided as a community to address head-on the current crisis in the Catholic Church in regards to clergy sexual abuse. We realize that maybe you or somebody you know and love may be a victim of abuse. And while nothing in this episode is expressly graphic, we do suggest listener discretion. If you or anyone you know have been a victim of sexual abuse, please report it immediately, and please know that you have a safe place at Assumption Church. This is the Assumption Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Assumption Church is a Roman Catholic community under the care of the Franciscan Friars Conventual of Our Lady of Angels Province. It is a community of faith which is active in service and its ministries bring the gospel message of peace, reconciliation, and love to Syracuse and all of Central New York. Your glory here among us, great is our So welcome to our third Tao Talk. Um, and the topic is being Catholic in, in scandalous times. So I'm going to, as you can see from the outline, go over a, a lot of information. And some of it is not as much con- conversation focused, um, just so we get some stuff out of the way. And then as time goes on, uh, we can certainly can ask questions anytime. But the, the, hopefully I'll try to build in some time to ask questions. On the right side of your sheet, there's also some things that you might want to think about. If you have a pen, you can you can jot down some ideas. But it's a, it's um, a thought, you know, um, something to jog your memory and to get you thinking about the topic. So we're here to talk about our response to clergy sexual abuse. Uh, but before we we do that, it's important important to put it into context. Um, that sexual abuse of minors and vulnerable adults is a societal issue. It's something that affects all of society, not just the church. And sometimes with the amount of press coverage that gets given, that gets given, that we have, we, we can lose perspective on that. Um, I have some, a little bit of information I'm gonna pass it around on the rate of sexual abuse in general. Um, you want to pass those out? Yeah. So most victims of um, child sexual abuse are uh, between the ages of 12 and 17. One out of nine girls will experience ab- sexual abuse at some point, and one out of 53 boys. So you see it's a much, much higher rate for women. Um, And people who experience abuse have a higher likelihood of falling into uh, drugs, experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, and uh, depression and anxiety later in life. And if you look at the other side of that sheet, it shows you, and this is from Rain, uh, it's a victim's uh, hotline. 
most of the perpetrators of sexual abuse are known to the victims, right? We often think of the creepy guy in a park who jumps a kid or whatever. That accounts for about 7% of cases. 93% of the cases, the person is known to the victim. 59% are acquaintances and 34% are family members, okay? So it's not the weird, creepy uh, stranger. It's sometimes us, our family, our friends. When it is uh, a family member, um, 80% of the time, it's the parent. 80% of the time, it's the parent. 6% other relatives, 5% other from, from siblings to strangers. And 4% are unmarried partners of a parent. So it's much closer to home, and it's a much more wide phenomenon. There's a lot of light shed on the church for a variety of reasons that we'll talk about, but it's important not to get, not to get focused just on the church to put it in the context of all of society. Um, the other thing to think about is the psychology of abuse. Okay? Most of the time we think of, of uh, sexual abuse as being a sexual crime. Most sexual assault or sexual abuse is not so much sexual as in the head dominating somebody else. It's asserting power over another and forcing them into a, in a posture of submission. And it usually reflects a very weak person who needs to dominate. In this case, we're talking about children or vulnerable adults. When we say vulnerable adults, we're talking about people with whom we have a power deferential. Um, it could be an employer with an employee, priest with parishioner, uh, that kind of thing. Or it could be somebody in a nursing home or a hospital, somebody who's really confined, uh, who can't defend themselves. In all the cases, it's, it's really wrong. Um, a lot of it has to do with the personal psychosexual development of the, of the perpetrator, right? Their, their ability to mature and to have healthy relationships has been compromised. And so they're stuck at a level um, where they need to find some way of gratifying themselves, of feeling powerful. And it's, it's a very serious developmental issue. When we talk of child sexual abuse, we often hear the word pedophile. And that is a very specific kind of abuse. That is a, a, the abuse of a child before puberty. So from zero till about 10 or 12, okay? And that does happen. I mean, infants are sexually abused. It, it's hard to imagine that, but it, it's the truth. One-year-olds, two-year-olds. We heard recently about a case of a four-year-old abused by their parents here in, 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 in central New York. There's a different type of abuse, which is substantially different but it includes um, children post-puberty, and that's called ephebophilia, and that's people who are 16, 17, 18, 19, okay? The, the mental uh, dynamics of that in terms of what happens to the person, the, the perpetrator, are different. Somebody who is um, abusing a, a 10-year-old or an 8-year-old, um, really, there's very little hope of any kind of healing. So, a person who's 22 and has a relationship with a 17-year-old, that's a different dynamic. That could be more of a, a 
a crossing of boundaries because emotionally they're not that different yet in terms of maturity. It's important to know that because um, in society, newscasters and journalists like to dramatize things. And now, I say this, I, in, in no way do I want to um, diminish the horror of abuse of any child. And most bishops can't speak to this, but I'm not a bishop. I can say there is other side to the stories as well. And sometimes there's exaggeration, you know. The other day uh, on the news we watched uh, a reporter, a weatherman, weatherman uh, in Florida, or North Carolina, uh, you know, in the, in the hurricane, and he was like, the wind is so harsh, I can't stand it, whatever. And as he was saying that, these two guys walked behind him, like with no effort at all. There was no wind. He was just, you know, playing it up a little bit, so he'd look very, very uh, courageous to be in the wind. And sometimes some of these stories are made, not worse, but they're amplified to get coverage. So we have to know what we're talking about. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the, about the history of abuse in the church. Um, the U.S. bishops um, in 2002 commissioned a study by the John Jay School of Criminal Justice in New York City, which is, which is an independent school of uh, forensic police work, whatever. Um, and they did a huge study which resulted in this book by Thomas Plant and some others uh, on the sexual abuse crisis. Uh, Thomas Plant is probably one of the most respected authors on the issue of abuse. Um, and he gives us some context for this. Um, so instead of having you read this together, um, he's also written a smaller article in People Magazine, of all things, which um, I'm going to give to you so you can have it to, uh, to read more in detail. So this article is from August 23rd of this year, and it follows the Pennsylvania Grand Jury um, report. And basically what he says, and it reflects what's in this book and in the John Jay Criminal Justice Report, um, that the, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury indictment is, spans 70 years, okay? And there was a definite peak in the 70s and 80s of uh, cases. I would bet there are also more way back, but they don't have a lot of information on them. People have died, both victims and perpetrators. In Pennsylvania, so they mentioned 300 cases, or 300 priests, 1,000 cases. In Pennsylvania, in the last 12 years, there only have been two cases. And both of them were referred to the police and were dealt with appropriately. Okay? So, of the 1,000, only two in the last 12 years. There's a huge, huge decline since the U.S. bishops have implemented a lot of protection for children. So a lot of this stuff is historical. It's older stuff, and it's captured by what we call the statute of limitations. After so many years, you can't go back and charge the person. It's, it's not possible. And we'll talk about that, whether it's right or wrong, uh, later on in the presentation. Um, it's a historical thing, but unfortunately, it's not going to go away. It will never 
completely go away. Because as we spoke of earlier, sexual abuse of children is part of society and the clergy are part of society. So you would hope that priests and bishops and deacons and religious are better than the average society, um, but the, overall they do, we do reflect the people we live with. So it's not gonna go, go away completely, but hopefully it's gonna be a much, much, much smaller number. In terms of numbers, if you looked at the news media, you would think that Catholic priests are the biggest abusers of children. That is not the case, okay? Studies have shown that 4% of Catholic priests have been involved in some form of abuse or another, okay? The rate among Catholic clergy is lower than the general population and lower than most professions. So for example, the rate of child sexual abuse of, by teachers is between five and 7%, okay? People st still send their kids to school. Nobody's saying, I'm giving up school because there's gonna be abuse of my kid. The way people are saying, I'm not gonna go to the church. Some of the logic doesn't follow, okay? Um, interesting factor, the rate of abuse of children by married Anglican priests is 4%, the same as Catholic priests, okay? So this is not a problem that is particular to us. It is a societal problem and exists among all clergy, and it certainly exists um, among any person who has um, a position of authority or trust with children. Teachers, coaches, physicians, nurses, everybody and Catholic priests actually have a lower incidence than most. Because when you look at the figures then, it goes to show that celibacy is not really the issue. People are saying, well, if priests weren't celibate, they wouldn't be taking it out on the kids. Well, most sexual abuse happens by married men. Most happens by married men. They're having sex, presumably. Anglican priests don't have a lower rate of abuse. Anglican priests are for the majority married men or women. In most cases, it's men. So, objectively, the rate among celibates and non-celibates is no different. So, the celibacy thing can't be the, the difference. The other thing is that even if a person is celibate, they're object of attraction doesn't change. So if I'm into goats, and I'm, I have an attraction to goats, and that's what I'm, I'm going after, but there are no goats around, I'm not gonna suddenly become interested in ducks, let's say, you know? So if I'm attracted to, to, to if, if, if I'm attracted to women, and there are no, no women in my life, why would I go after a young child? It, it makes, makes no sense, you know? Think of your own attraction in your life. Would you switch that overnight to something else? No, that's not natural. That's not me. The same thing. So the, the statistic shows that the, the absence of, of active sex life does not cause a person to switch their object of attraction. The other uh, issue that is commonly thrown about by certain people, especially now with the Pope, is around gay priests. 
that homosexuality is the issue. Again, gay priests, and for some people it's a bit of a shock that there are gay priests and straight priests and bisexual priests. There are all sorts of priests. As, the, as there are in our families, in our society, priests reflect that, okay? And for the most part, the vast majority are fine, celibate priests, as are straight people. We, we, we all, everybody does, has the same promises and the same vows. Um, there isn't a correlation between homosexuality and abuse. In fact, there are more heterosexual abusers of children than homosexual. People will point to the fact, well, so many of the priests who abused, abused boys. And this is true. However, most of the men who were pedophiles and abused boys identify as heterosexual. So this is where it gets funky, right? This, remember what I said at the very beginning, this is not a sexual expression, it's a domination expression. So they will go after whoever is the, the what do you call that, the, the fruit that's easy to... Uh, lowest hanging. The lowest hanging fruit, right? Who do they have accessible that they have power over that they can manipulate? Because it takes a lot to abuse a child. You have to groom the child, especially if it's not a, a baby, if it's an adolescent. There's a lot of grooming that takes place. In other words, behavior that you do to diminish the person's uh, reticence or their boundaries or their, um, their, their common sense. So gifts, a lot of complimenting, inviting the person over to the house, desensitizing them to um, kind of informality, and, and gradually breaking down their inhibitions until you can pounce on the, on the child. That takes time and it takes a lot of access to the child. And so they will go with whoever, whatever gender or sex of the child is, as long as they can control the child because it's dominating the person. That's the key thing. So homosexuality is not the, the, the key thing. Finally, the results of, of Thomas Plant's research points to the fact that since 2002, the church has implemented best practices in the protection of children. Okay? And these best practices have worked. There is a huge, huge decline in the incidence of child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Probably today, the Catholic Church is one of the safest places you can send your kid. There are so many conditions, restrictions, um, kind of guidelines for that. So, in a way, as we're facing this crisis in the media, it doesn't always reflect the reality of what's happened in the church. It's a, little, a lot of heat but not giving us a lot of light. Any questions thus far in terms of what you're experiencing and how, how what I'm saying conflicts or helps you understand what you've experienced in, in the news or with friends and family? Because I know we're all getting the heat from friends and family, people complaining and saying, what the hell's going on in your church? questions about this, what I've said? Anything surprising? Are you shocked by anything? 
Karen, are you you're good? Okay. So it brings us to how has the church responded to this over the years, okay? So before we talk about that, we have to talk about the church structure. Because in the media and in sometimes in our minds, we misunderstand how the church is structured and how the response should be. For example, many Catholics think of the church, and people in the, in the news, think of the church as a multinational corporation. So you have the CEO, which is the Pope, the head office in Rome, the Holy See, and all these branch offices around the world. That is not correct. Okay? The Catholic Church is, in a way, more like a franchise. Okay? Each bishop is the vicar of Christ for that church. He is the supreme authority of that church. The Church of Syracuse. It is fully Catholic and apostolic in and of itself. By itself, it is the church. The church of Ogdensburg, the church of Rochester. These are complete churches, and the bishop is the head of that church. All the Catholic bishops together, gathered, form in a way the universal church. And among them, one bishop has supreme authority. But not not day-to-day management authority. It's more spiritual authority. And the reason is that the Church of Rome was always seen as the preeminent church. It was seen as the, the church that had its stuff together from day one. Because of the blood of Peter and Paul, the fact that they were martyred there, that made the Church of Rome the strongest church. So from the day one, when people had disagreements about how to do things, they always referred back, what does Rome do? You know, But it's not about the Pope. It's about the Church of Rome. There were times when there were gaps when there was no Bishop of Rome. Shocking. The Church of Rome and its presbyters, its priests, were still considered the litmus test. What does Rome do? Because the Church of Rome has such preeminence, the Bishop of Rome is seen as the the bridge between all the churches, the one who guarantees communion, who keeps us together. And with that comes certain authority. As Catholics, it's not just one among equal. We see the Bishop of Rome as having authority. If a bishop is acting contrary to the communion of the rest of the church, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, can correct him or remove him, actually. So when we talk about this, this, the scandals and stuff, it's not like the Pope can just go around and start uh, managing other churches or Vatican officials can get involved. It's a very serious issue for the Pope to get involved in the management of a diocese. Okay. Could he do it more around this issue? Yes, and the Church has. The, the Holy See is much more involved in any case of abuse now. So if something happens and there's an abuse situation, that whole file eventually has to go to Rome, and the final decision is left to the Holy See. Okay. But it would be false to say that it's all the Pope's fault. He, ha- he doesn't have a lot of control over the day-to-day response to stuff. In terms of cases of sexual abuse, in the past, the church has always reflected the best practices and mentality of the day. Okay? For the most part. And I, I mean, I, I've, been, I've been a friar for 35 years. Uh, I have a degree in counseling. 
I've been on our leadership team in Canada. I've seen a lot of things come and go. And I can vouch for the fact that people have tried to do their best. So let's say 70 years ago, a priest horseplay, you know, yeah. fools around with a kid, a girl or a boy or whatever, or touches somebody inappropriately. Bad priest. That is a mortal sin. So what do you do with a mortal sin? Do you commit a mortal sin? What do you do? Confess. You go to confession, and what do you do afterwards? Penance. penance. So often they would say, your penance is you go in a monastery for a month, and you think about heart, long and hard about that sin you committed. That was a terrible thing to do. And you've done your penance, you're finished, okay. Do better next time. Here's another assignment, right? Well, eventually, people realize, wait a second, this is not just a moral issue. This person has a problem. Like, they keep doing it, right? It's not a, a lapse of, of judgment or character. There is something funky going on in this person's head. So, what the church began to do is to get people help. And there are treatment centers all over the continent and all over the world, but the best ones are in the, in the United States and Canada. There's one in Toronto called Southbound that a lot of, a lot of people went through. Um, that we would send friars who had drinking problems or depression or this, or who acted out inappropriately with peers, with other adults, or with children to therapy. And I can tell you, I saw it myself, we've spent just in Canada, in, among the friars, hundreds of thousands of dollars on therapy for people. And it was like, it's going to work, and we can rehabilitate them, and they're good to go. They've you know, dealt with their inner child. They, maybe they weren't breastfed enough as children, and now it's, you know, they've gotten over it. Therapy has been intensive. Good to go. And counselors and psychologists assured us they're good to go. They're healed. And we said, okay, give you a fresh start. Move to the other side of the country and go for it. And we found that in many cases, they did it again. Until we came to the realization, as did society, that abusive behavior is so part of a damaged person's personality. It's not just a temporary psychological problem. It is, it is something that can't be changed. It is ingrained into who they are. Their development is arrested, so their relationships have to be at that other age group. And there's not much you can do about it, which is horribly sad, but it's the truth. And after that realization happened, we, people start stopping people from being, assi being um, assigned to ministry. Now, part of the reason that happened, that insight happened, was because people went public, because journalists covered the stories, because some of the stuff got revealed. Because, you know, the church is not always the speediest at responding to things. So we have to thank the victims who came forward. We have to thank the journalists and the lawyers who brought this to the surface, because it helped the church acknowledge what was going on. And then eventually in 2002, I think it was 2002, I was in Canada still, we, uh, the U.S. bishops created what's called the Dallas Charter, which is basically all the, the ways of accountability for um, maintaining 
good, good uh, and proper relationships with minors and vulnerable adults. And the U.S. bishops really adopted a zero-tolerance thing. So it doesn't matter what you do. If you breach the Dallas Charter, you are out of ministry. Okay? It's one of the harsher approaches and doesn't take into account the degree of severity of the action or the person's age or the victim's age. It's zero tolerance, which in other countries isn't used the same way. So for, so for in Canada, there's a little bit more leeway into looking at what actually happened. So for example, if you saw the Aretha Franklin funeral, there was that huge scandal about that bishop who welcomed Ariana Grande, the singer, and he, so he was holding her very tight to himself, but he was holding her from the side and his hands were on her breast, right? And you could see she was like trying to pull away. She was uncomfortable with that. If he had been a Catholic bishop, I think he'd be out. That would, that would not have been tolerated. Like, that's not appropriate touching. Even though you don't, you know, so there's almost like, well, was he being goofy? Was it awkward? Was it just, just a, a stupid momentary lapse of judgment? Or was it an assault? Done. There's no debate. There's no leeway. Very, very little wiggle room now, which I don't, I'm not sure is the, the best way forward. But that's how the church has evolved in its thinking. It's followed the times from a moral issue to a psychological issue to now to something that really is kind of permanently fixed in the person and you can't have them in a ministry at all, never again. And that's what we do. So among the friars, we don't have a lot of cases uh, of abuse. But um, if there's any kind, any kind of allegation that's, that's substantiated in any way by the police or whatever, and, you know, everything goes to the police now, right? And the friars, we are part of something called Presidium, which is a, an organization out of the University of Texas, outside of the Catholic Church, that goes through our records and certifies that we have dealt with everything above board and we've... We don't have any secret files of things that have not been handled. Everything's been handled above board. If, we, if there is somebody who's, who shouldn't be in ministry, because we are always brothers, no matter what our friars do, we don't kick them out of the order. In most cases, we have a couple of houses in North America where they can live uh, a secure life without ministry, where they're supervised, they can't go out on their own, um, they can't be on the internet. You know, there's very strict rules where we can also watch them. Because our thing is, A, they're our brothers. B, if we toss them out, where are they going to go and what are they going to do? Right? If you have somebody who's that badly damaged, do you want them just ro roaming the streets? We'd prefer not to. But again, that, that is up for grabs now because the Holy See is taking control of those decisions. So the Vatican is saying now whether or not we can keep them, even in a controlled environment. Um, and, and the punishments are very strict. I know of one priest in the U.S. who, young, 40-something years old, I, I don't understand it, how in this day and age, somebody who's 40, who's been through the same formation I have, cannot re look for help in the order or in the, in the seminaries. Um, Franciscans, I mean, everybody is accepted and loved, and we get so much education around sexuality and, and, and relationships and everything. How he, this guy went through, I don't know how it happened. But anyways, 
um, he was uh, communicating inappropriately with a minor through Facebook and saying things that he really should not have been saying, very suggestive things, and was trying to set up a meeting. And this priest went to the meeting, but instead of finding the kid, he found a state trooper. Um, he ended up five years in jail. So never went anywhere near the child, never touched the child, but got five years of jail and no, no early release. And that's, you know, that's the way the, the, the court cases are going now. It's very, very severe, very strict. Any questions? Okay. Um, apart from the abuse of children, there's also boundary violations, which happen with adults, usually in, in uh, relationship, relationships of power, where um, it's your parishioner, it's somebody that works for you, it's somebody who's a nursing home or whatever. And in those cases, um, most of the time it involves things like alcohol, okay? So priests sometimes drink alcohol um, and sometimes are not prudent in their use of alcohol. I was always taught that when you're at a work function, you don't drink as a priest because no matter what you say, and if people say, you know, you're off the clock kind of thing, as, as a priest, you're never not a priest, obviously. And... People want you to lay, let your hair down, whatever hair you have left, um, but they don't, right? So it's, it's, it's kind of a, a weird situation to be, oh, relax, Father, have a drink. But sometimes priests drink too much and they can cross boundaries, you know? And that's hugely diminished because when I joined the order, guys used to drink a lot, even among the friars, a lot of drinking and a lot of smoking. And that has really, really changed in the 35 years I've been in. It's, it's, it's radically different. Guys are much, much more moderate in their drinking. And uh, I know maybe one or two friars that smoke. I mean, they just, nobody does that anymore. Um, some of the other issues that lead to boundary violations are a lack of intimacy in the priest's or friar's life. You know, and when I say intimacy, people think, well, aren't they celibates? Well, celibates have intimacy as well. Celibates are sexual people. We're, we all have a, we're all sexual, right? We choose to forego its sexual expression of our desires for the sake of the kingdom. We choose to funnel that energy in service to God and to our neighbor. But we're still sexual people, have the sexual desires, and, and we still need the intimacy that, that comes with relationships. That to not have intimacy is a denial of the Trinity because. Our God is a relationship of intimacy, right? And Pope Francis says all the time, he's always saying this, we don't need priests and nuns who look like dried prunes, you know, who are like dry and not effective and not friendly and not warm. That doesn't help anybody. That kind of celibacy is useless. We need people who are fruitful celibates, people who love generously. Celibacy and chastity are about loving generously instead of loving just one person in your life. It's about not having that one other, but having multiple relationships that are appropriate, of course. <laughs> multiple relationships with everybody. Um, but you'll see priests who, because of whatever reason in their life, make choices where they're cut off and don't have peers they can talk to, don't have friends they can talk to. They get kind of funky in the head. 
after a while. They start believing their own grandeur and, uh, you know, they lack accountability. You know, those of you who are married know that when you make decisions, or those of you who live in community, it's a pain in the ass. Because you want to go buy a TV, you can't just go out and buy a TV. You got to talk to your spouse. Do we have enough money? Do we have enough room? Is that our priority right now? If I'm alone and I'm totally in control of my money and of everything that I do, I just do what I want. And sometimes I can get used to that, that I take and do what I want. And that is very dangerous for people, especially if you're celibate. Um, lack of self-care. You know, we all love the priest who's always there, always working. If you see a priest who never takes a day off, never goes on vacation, run like hell. Run like hell. Because that is not a healthy lifestyle. Something, that, that, that's going to wear out some, at some point. And you don't, you don't want to be on the receiving end of that. Um, you need to have time for leisure, for rest, for recreation, for reading, for the arts. You know, not everything, a priest's life cannot revolve around the church only. You have to have interests beyond the church. Literature, art, music, culture um, are very important things. And recreation. And finally, the biggest culprit I would say, in, in besides mental illness in child sexual abuse, is a culture of clericalism. You know, in the old days, we used to think of priests as higher. You know, in society, you had the pope, cardinals, the bishops, the nuns, the brothers, single people, married, whatever. And Vatican II reminded us, no, we're all the same. No, one, one calling is not higher or holier than the other. They're all different paths to holiness, right? Hopefully, priests and religious are people, sinners. Hope keeps telling us, I am a sinner. They're sinners like us, but they're people who are courageous in that walk towards the Lord and can inspire us by picking up and starting over again. And they lead us that way. Uh, I think priests and bishops and, and, and religious don't lead us by being better than us. They lead us by being more faithful or being faithful walkers or followers of Jesus. So there are times, though, when priests, again, like I said, start thinking of themselves as beyond the rules, above the rules. The church is above the law. You know, We can't let this scandal come out. It'll destroy. So we talk about it in hushed tones and we cover things up because it might damage the reputation of the church. The people, the Masons, Masons? Yeah, the Masons will attack or these people will attack us or the Protestants will attack us because we are special, right? So when you're ordained, an ontological change happens. In other words, your soul is changed through ordination. Well, your soul is changed through baptism too. You know, that's not an excuse for being better above others. Unfortunately, today, we see more of that resurgence in seminaries where they're really pumping the guys up that they're like superheroes and they're the ones who are going to bring God to the people. And it kind of makes your head bigger than it ought to be. And I think it's very dangerous because, first of all, God is already here. God is present. 
in single people, married people, in everyone. And God is present in a special way in marriages. God is truly, really present in marriage. God is present when uh, a dad stays up late at night changing the diapers of his children. God is very much present when a mom starts her job at 5 a.m. to pay for her kid's college tuition, right? That is the Holy Spirit at work. That is God present. You don't need the church or the priest to bring God. What the priest certainly does is bring us the sacraments, which are a unique manifestation of God. But that's a gift to the whole church. We as a church have received those gifts, not just the priests. The priests are at the service of the church. So in a way, we have to kind of reclaim, I think, the, 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 the ecclesiology or the vision of church of Vatican II so that we are all accountable to one another and not, not give in to this kind of clericalism that puts people above the law, especially bishops, unfortunately. Any questions about kind of the self-care stuff or no okay you good um in terms of the present um situation um the pennsylvania grand jury investigation and now the subpoena from the attorney general of new york um it's a a very good development um because it again will bling bling will bring clarity to the situation. Is it all for the sake of clarity? Unfortunately not. Some of it is political points. I'm the guy who went after the church and got these results. Some of it is about getting money for people, lawsuits, unfortunately. And that's very hard for bishops to say because if if a bishop says that, it sounds disingenuous, it sounds heartless, it sounds like you're blaming the victims, right? So it's, it's an awkward place to be, but that's part of the reality. Um, the Diocese of Syracuse already has a very, very close relationship with the district attorney. Uh, what's his name? Fitzgerald Fitzpatrick. So they work very closely. Any case, all the records are always open between the two. And so Fitzpatrick knows everything about all the cases that have happened in, New York, in the Diocese of Syracuse. Um, God willing, it'll be, bring more healing and more clarity. Syracuse also has an independent reconciliation and compensation program, which is if somebody has been, has claimed abuse by a priest in the, in the Diocese of Syracuse, they now put their claim into a panel out of New York, New York City, which is independent of the Catholic Church, and they listen to what happened to the person and then offer a process of reconciliation and compensation. They'll offer them money. Um, and the bishop is not involved in that process and has no say. So if, let's say, the lawyers say, based on what happened to this person, you need to compensate him $3 million, the bishop has to do that. And recently we heard about, you know, uh, in the bulletin we had it, that one of the persons who received compensation is turning that money over for masses to be said in every parish of the diocese, and the money is supposed to go to the food pantries of the diocese as well. So a very generous act of healing for everybody. Um, One of the big struggle um, right now is that many lawmakers are being pressured 
to lift the statute of limitations on these crimes or to at least open a window, let's say, for the next year, if you were abused any time in the last 70 years, you can sue. You can be charged criminally and you can sue where you couldn't before. In some ways that makes sense, except every almost, I think it's every case where the legislatures have put forward that uh, law, it has only targeted the Catholic Church or churches. It has excluded schools or government officials. We know that there are higher incidences of child sexual abuse by teachers. Why don't they allow schools to be in that window of uh, going back, you know, of lifting of the statute of limitations? Some say because the teacher unions are very powerful and big donors do political campaigns. So there's a bit of a, sometimes it's not what it, it's not as clear as, as, as it seems. There's some game playing happening. Even if they lifted the statute of limitations, would that be the worst thing for the church? Perhaps, I mean, maybe it would devastate us financially. Um, it might put an end to Catholic charities. It might, it might, you know, make many, many, many dioceses bankrupt. But would we gain our credibility back? You know, if there was that level of healing and, and, and uh, transparency, I don't know. Um, but I know a lot of people are nervous about that. The other thing that's coming up today is misconduct by bishops. So there was a, a charge against Cardinal McCarrick um, that he had inappropriate relationships with adult uh, seminarians who were under him, in other words. So uh, uh, an offense in terms of um, differential of power, difference of power. And who knew, who didn't know? There's even questions about whether the Pope knew, Pope Francis, Pope Benedict, who knew what? It's a little funky. I mean, there's nothing worse than Roman intrigue. Um, there was a lot of people lying. My, I don't think Pope Francis is perfect. I think he has a lot of blind spots in some areas. He's a man of his age. He is uh, Latin American. He has certain mindsets. But he is a Jesuit. Jesuits are pretty smart people, right? And this, he is no dummy. He's very pastoral, he's very sweet, he's very grandfatherly, but he's a sharp, sharp man. Um, I would seriously doubt that he just brushed aside things uh, that, that he knew were true. I, I don't believe that for a second. Um, the bigger issue, and I think what makes most of us angry, including me, is bishops covering up abuse cases. Now, if you understand that at, at some point, bishops did the best, the best they knew. They thought it was a sin. Okay, you did your penance. Let's start over somewhere else. Okay. Or you went for therapy. You're good now. You're okay. Okay, we'll give you a new assignment. That I can tolerate. But when you have a bishop that sees a pattern of behavior in somebody and knowingly moves them around, I think that person has to be held accountable. You know, uh, the most notorious case is, of course, Cardinal Law in Boston, who, I mean, the, the what was that movie, The Spotlight, or, mm -hmm. you know, it's, 
I don't know. I don't know how you explain that. I mean, that's just pure evil. You know, when you, when you knowingly move people that abuse children, and it's not a, a fuzzy area, um, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to them. But I know now, I mean, those people should go to jail. I mean, covering up those, those sins is, 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 is horrifying. I think that's the, the biggest um, challenge for the church, you know. And that's what, like, today they announced that there's some new policies and approaches. Personally, as I said in church, I think that whether it's priests or bishops, all of that should be managed by an outside organization. Uh, in Australia, they had a, a national, they had like a congressional panel, the equivalent, it's called a, a royal commission in Australia that dealt with the cases in Australia. And they said, well, you know, um, priests shouldn't be bound by the seal of confession and priests shouldn't be celibate. I mean, they, they didn't get it all right. But their report led the Australian bishops to set up a Catholic professional standards company that monitors every diocese and religious order. One of my friends happens to be the executive director of that organization. And her job is to make sure that the bishops and the religious orders follow the rules and do things that they're supposed to do, and that there are standards, you know. Um, the other thing that we don't do for priests that we should do is have some kind of evaluative process, you know. If you get ordained and then never read a book of theology, never open a magazine of theology, never take a continuing education course, sleep most of the day, just show up where, when you're supposed to for Mass, you get every same perk as a guy who updates, who reads, who works hard, and does his job really well. There's no salary increase, there's no promotions, there's nothing, right? And there's no sense of you're doing a good job, or buddy, you need to, you need to you know, maybe less naps and more work. Mm. There's none of that. And I think that's one of, in both ways, it's, it's disheartening for priests because there's no, there's no, um, how do I put it? Nothing, no, nothing to motivate you to do better. And there's nothing to say um, you're doing a good job. So I think all those issues are, are things that the church has to address today. Any questions? Yes, much, many, many few. I know. The USCCB hasn't anything like that as the Australian bishops. No, well, so the, 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 the bishops have a review board that is out lay people, but they report to the bishops, right? And the, and the, and the review board, the national, every diocese has a review board, every order has a review board, there's a national review board, but the U.S. review board has basically reported back, they responded to Cardinal DiNardo and to the whole Cardinal McCarrick thing and saying, you don't listen to us when we talk because they're an advisory board to the bishops. They, they can't, they can't re issue things by themselves. Whereas in Australia, it's a separate company. It's funded by the bishop, but there's no bishops on the thing at all. They're entirely lay controlled, which I think it needs to be hands, what do you call it, hands off? You know, mm -hmm. It has to be distant from the bishops. So that's what I think. I mean, that's my thought. And that's why I had that, that petition, you know. Um, 
So the, the next thing is, where do we go from here? You know, um, I think one of the things we have to do is certainly make the difference between our faith and our religion. That our faith is not in Father so-and-so, and it's not in the church itself, but it's in Jesus Christ. That's, that's the rock that we base everything on. The church is, a, is the manifestation, is an expression of our faith, but our faith has to be grounded in Jesus because the church can make mistakes, some priests can be mean, priests can, can be in error, but the, but the whole church, which is us, you know, we are the church. We and the clergy and the bishops, we together form the church. And we are guaranteed faithfulness, we're guaranteed freedom from error and fallibility by the Holy Spirit as a community of faith. So together, yeah, we're good. But we, if, we, if we put our, our faith in just individuals, we, we, you know, we're not going to survive. Or become fixated on how certain things ought to be. You know, like people who used to say, you know, I, I stopped going to church after they told me I didn't have to eat fish on Fridays. Like they, they changed my religion. Well, our religion was not about eating. I and mean, that's, that's an expression of our faith. But that's a, uh, an expression. It's not the religion itself. So I think we have to focus, you know, what, what are our priorities as Catholics? Um, the second thing is to support your priests. Uh, not because I'm the pastor of Assumption that I say that, but I think that if, if you, as I said before, to encourage priests and, and, and religious who are doing a good job, if you see them doing a good job, say, say to them. If their homilies make sense, say stuff, you know? Because, and then if they don't, say stuff. That's even more important. Priests are rarely told the truth. It's, it's, it's true. And, I, you know, people, and people on Assumption tell me, Father, you don't know how this person really is because they're around you, they're very nice. But then when they're around this people, they're really SOBs. And I've, by accident, I've seen that. I'm like, oh my God, it's true. Around me, it's all perfect, right? And They'll complain about me to other people, but they won't tell me to my face. Like, talk to me. I'm not going to bite your head off. Well, I might, but you'll, re- you'll recover. You know, and I'll change. You know, after half an hour, I'll be, I'll calm down. But that is so important. So if, you, if you've got a guy who never prepares his homily, who drones out for 20 minutes and says nothing, you know, buy him a coffee and say, do you want some help with your homilies? <laughs> Could we talk, you know? It's really important. Priests are human beings. Or if they're, act, if they're doing stuff that's kind of funky, like, you know, you know, he's always going out to dinner with this particular woman, and they're going out late, and you see them drinking, and, you, and you've seen them in the city and stuff. You know, like Camille was saying to me, I saw you with your girls. I'm walking the streets of Syracuse. We went out for ice cream and, and downtown, and Camille saw us all together on community night. But if you see the priest doing something that you think is a little, hmm, Say something. It doesn't have to be accusatory. Just say, hey, Father, you know, people are talking, you're always with Camille. You might want to, you know, Uh-oh. what's going on, you know? <laughs> I know it, it, it's a little scary, but if, if you have a priest that you care about, it's worth telling him the truth. And I guarantee, at first he might be a little bit cranky about it, but in the end he'll thank you. 
It's really important because then, if there's if there's the beginnings of insanity, you know, where a priest loses perspective, uh, at least you know you might have done something to help him. The other thing is take responsibility for the church. The church is not the priests, right? And we have to be involved. It's like I was saying, we had we had a good turnout for Alpha last night. Um, we didn't have a lot of volunteers, you know, and it's like everybody whines about, oh, assumption, I wish assumption would grow, I wish we had more parishioners. Well, what are you doing about it? Did you invite anybody? You know, like, and I think especially at assumption, but in most places, we have learned to become passive and wait for people to do stuff for us. And we have to take responsibility. Like, I remember I was commenting about uh, um, the ministers of communion, extraordinary ministers of communion to the sick homebound. You guys have restructured yourself a little bit because you realize, okay, we need to do things a bit differently. We, we don't have enough people. Take charge, you know? That's good. <clears throat> take responsibility. Take initiative. Um, and then the last thing I had was that we need to challenge our bishops to reform, that the status quo is not acceptable. And we do that like St. Francis in a way that is not ad hominem attacking or telling the bishops they're bad or they're not Catholic or they're not whatever. A, by example, but, but with great respect. Because our bishops are 99.9% really good people. They're trying their best to do their best. They have a lot of pressure. They're, they're listening to lawyers. They're listening to counselors. They're listening to parishioners. They're listening to priests. And they're trying to figure out what's the best way forward. Well, we have to voice our voices too. We have to tell them what we think um, because they need prayer and they need help and they need a lot of love. So um, that's what I offer to you today. If you have any questions or concerns or thoughts about it. Um, and in terms of the other thing was, you know, the kind of the ridicule or the questions we're getting from other people. Um, my family knows not to say that to me, but my one sister bugs me about it. Oh, you got you Catholics, you know. Well, yeah. it's probably because I think it's more because we covered up. Yeah. And it's all about it was, it was that my mother who was went to church every day. There was a point back when it first happened. How long ago? Zero two and all this came mm-hmm. up. And she said she didn't know where the money. Some of the money was gone. Priests who covered it up, or the bishop who covered it up, and all that. So, I truly think if somebody leaves the church today, I'm sure there's some legitimate who think it through and don't want to go, but if they leave, it's maybe because they were on the fence of leaving. You know, yeah. You know, or they didn't like you. Or yeah. The trustee that you picked. <laughs> you know, they were already in. Uh, I'm going to continue. Well, you know. Whether it's the abuse scandal, so if somebody leaves Assumption because of the abuse scandal, they leave because they don't like that Glenn's not there, or they don't like that we don't have candles on the high altar, or that we sang a different Alleluia at Christmas or Easter. I I, I, I feel more sorry for them. Like if you don't like my homilies, okay, or or if you hate the music that we're doing now. Oh, you know, and, and it's not life-giving, okay, I get it, you know. But small stuff, I, like you said, I, I think it's something, somebody I mean, who already if, was on the... Even if you corrected all that you just said, 
they find something else. I mean, that's, it's else. you know, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, they just... But I, I, I do think, and I mean, I would, I would do it myself. We also vote with our feet and we vote with our dollars. And I'll be, I'll be very straightforward with you. When I'm on vacation, I think I've told you in the homily, you know, I'm, my, my sisters don't go to church, my nephews don't go to church, I go by myself on Sundays. Where are you going, you know? Um, but I have in my pocket two different Sunday offerings. Good homily or Good liturgy or not. Yeah. Right? So one pocket might have a $5 bill, the other pocket might have a $20 bill. And part of it is, was, was there effort put into the Mass? Mm. Like, I'm not saying perfection, but did somebody think through, think through what they were doing? Was there, was there nice music? Was the homily decent? Were people friendly? And I said, I, I want to I support this parish. Now, I don't have a lot of money, but, and I don't, I don't go to Mass that often anymore now that, now that I work in a parish. But I'll support a parish that puts effort into what they're doing. And people were careless, huh? Why should I bother? And people, people do the same thing. You know, and I think with the, with the, with the cover-ups, people are holding back. I think w- what we're hearing from our accountant is that all the churches are seeing a, a, a pretty substantial drop in, in income. So I, it's something that as a church we have to address. But I still think a lot of people use it as an excuse. They, they're not going to Mass. They stopped going a long time ago, and they keep using something like this as an yeah. excuse not to return. Okay. That's all. Yeah. And no matter what you say or how you build it up, it's, some people are just that way. But part of it is not to let things fester. Right. Right? And, and even the abuse thing. So I'll tell you, you guys are all influential people. So much you guys are. <laughs> but you are. Um, if, you, if you hear people who have a bone to pick with me, tell them to come and talk to me. I will buy them coffee. I will not bite their heads off. And I appreciate, I'm a very direct guy. I appreciate directness back, you know. If I'm still talking to Camille Longo, you know, you can talk to me. And she's not, not passive either, no. you know. So, right? And, Joanna, and I can get along with Joanna Motto. I mean, that's a, I'm a saint already. <laughs> so, no, I mean, these are all tough people who speak the truth. But, you know, we can grow in relationship. And I think, I think for the church is we have to hold each other accountable. My trustees, my trustees, our trustees, Jack and Patty Knight, I pick them because they're very honest people. Because we don't need any more hiding, you know. If, if our finances are messy, we need to, hey, what's going on? This is not working. I got a little bit of that today. <laughs> so just, and wherever you end up, you know, you know now but in the future, it's important that in your parishes and your faith communities, you speak up. You don't be shy to talk to your priest. Nicely, gently, but truth is so important. It frees us all up. Okay, I'm tired of talking. <laughs> Questions, concerns? Let's get the heck out of here. You've certainly given a very thorough look at this whole perspective. Okay. And, uh, you know, this, this article is really very good um, I'm, I'm going to post some links to um, to the article on the website and to this book and, and also the John Jay uh, report because that's very thorough so um, the other thing to look at is uh, we didn't talk about that but like 
in priests, if you see priests also who don't act their age. Mm. So priests or seminarians, and I don't mean a priest who's youthful, but a priest who only hangs out with people much younger than him. Who, okay, with Francisco, I, I tend to hang out with women who are much <laughs> younger than me, but whose main affective relationship is much younger, who doesn't have peer relationship, that should be a warning sign. A priest who dresses like he's 15 years old, that should give you a warning that something's not right. Things to look at in, in, in your parishes as well. In you Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Assumption Church Podcast. To listen to more episodes, connect with us in our community, or join us for worship, please visit assumptionsyr.org.